Chapter eighty four of He Knew He Was Right. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. He Knew He Was Right by Anthony Trollope. Chapter eighty four Self Sacrifice. Trevelyan, when his wife had left him, sat for hours in silence pondering over his own position and hers. He had taken his child to an upper room, in which was his own bed and the boy's cot, and before he seated himself he spread out various toys which he had been at pains to purchase for the unhappy little fellow. A regiment of Garibaldian soldiers, all with red shirts, and a drum to give the regiment martial spirit, and a soft, fluffy Italian ball, and a battledore and a shuttlecock. Instruments enough for juvenile joy, if only there had been a companion with whom the child could use them. But the toys remained where the father had placed them, almost unheeded, and the child sat looking out of the window, melancholy, silent, and repressed. Even the drum did not tempt him to be noisy. Doubtless he did not know why he was wretched, but he was fully conscious of his wretchedness. In the meantime the father sat motionless, in an old worn-out but once handsome leathern armchair, with his eyes fixed against the opposite wall, thinking of the wreck of his life. Thought deep, correct, continued, and energetic is quite compatible with madness. At this time Trevelyan's mind was so far unhinged, his ordinary faculties were so greatly impaired, that they who declared him to be mad were justified in their declaration. His condition was such that the happiness and welfare of no human being, not even his own, could safely be entrusted to his keeping. He considered himself to have been so injured by the world, to have been the victim of so cruel a conspiracy among those who ought to have been his friends, that there remained nothing for him but to flee away from them and remain in solitude. But yet, through it all, there was something approaching to a conviction that he had brought his misery upon himself by being unlike to other men, and he declared to himself over and over again that it was better that he should suffer than that the others should be punished. When he was alone, his reflections respecting his wife were much juster than were his words when he spoke either with her or to others of her conduct. He would declare to himself not only that he did not believe her to have been false to him, but that he had never accused her of such crime. He had demanded from her obedience, and she had been disobedient. It had been incumbent upon him, so ran his own ideas, as expressed to himself in these long unspoken soliloquies to exact obedience, or at least compliance, let the consequences be what they might. She had refused to obey, or even to comply, and the consequences were very grievous. But though he pitied himself with a pity that was feminine, yet he acknowledged to himself that her conduct had been the result of his own moody temperament. Every friend had parted from him, all those to whose counsels he had listened had counseled him that he was wrong, the whole world was against him. Had he remained in England, the doctors and lawyers among them would doubtless have declared him to be mad. He knew all this, and yet he could not yield. He could not say that he had been wrong. He could not even think that he had been wrong as to the cause of the great quarrel. He was one so miserable and so unfortunate, so he thought, that even in doing right he had fallen into perdition. He had had two enemies, and between them they had worked his ruin. These were Colonel Osborne and Basil. It may be doubted whether he did not hate the latter the more strongly of the two. He knew now that Basil had been untrue to him, but his disgust did not spring from that so much as from the feeling that he had defiled himself by dealing with the man. Though he was quite assured that he had been right in his first cause of offence, 
he knew that he had fallen from bad to worse in every step that he had taken since. Colonel Osborne had marred his happiness by vanity, by wicked intrigue, by a devilish delight in doing mischief, but he, he himself, had consummated the evil by his own folly. Why had he not taken Colonel Osborne by the throat, instead of going to a low-born, vile, mercenary spy for assistance? He hated himself for what he had done, and yet it was impossible that he should yield. It was impossible that he should yield, but it was yet open to him to sacrifice himself. He could not go back to his wife and say that he was wrong, but he could determine that the destruction should fall upon him and not upon her. If he gave up his child and then died, died alone, without any friend near him, with no word of love in his ears, in that solitary and miserable abode which he had found for himself, then it would at least be acknowledged that he had expiated the injury that he had done. She would have his wealth, his name, his child to comfort her, and would be troubled no longer by demands for that obedience which she had sworn at the altar to give him, and which she had since declined to render to him. Perhaps there was some feeling that the coals of fire would be hot upon her head when she should think how much she had received from him, and how little she had done for him. And yet he loved her, with all his heart, and would even yet dream of bliss that might be possible with her, had not the terrible hand of irresistible fate come between them and marred it all. It was only a dream now. It could be no more than a dream. He put out his thin wasted hands and looked at them, and touched the hollowness of his own cheeks, and coughed that he might hear the hacking sound of his own infirmity, and almost took glory in his weakness. It could not be long before the coals of fire would be heaped upon her head. "'Louis,' he said at last, addressing the child who had sat for an hour gazing through the window without stirring a limb or uttering a sound. "'Louis, my boy, would you like to go back to mamma? The child turned round on the floor and fixed his eyes on his father's face, but made no immediate reply. "'Louis, dear, come to papa and tell him. Would it be nice to go back to mamma? And he stretched out his hand to the boy. Louis got up and approached slowly and stood between his father's knees. "'Tell me, darling, you understand what papa says?' "'Altro,' said the boy, who had been long enough among Italian servants to pick up the common words of the language. Of course you would like to go back. How indeed could it be otherwise? Then you shall go to her, Louis. Today, papa. Not today, nor tomorrow. But the day after? That is sufficient. You shall go. It is not so bad with you that one day more need be a sorrow to you. You shall go, and then you will never see your father again. Trevelyan, as he said this, drew his hands away so as not to touch the child. The little fellow had put out his arm, but seeing his father's angry gesture had made no further attempt at a caress. He feared his father from the bottom of his little heart, and yet was aware that it was his duty to try to love papa. He did not understand the meaning of that last threat, but slunk back, passing his untouched toys to the window, and there seated himself again, filling his mind with the thought that when two more long, long days should have crept by, he should once more go to his mother. Trevelyan had tried his best to be soft and gentle to his child. All that he had said to his wife of his treatment of the boy had been true to the letter. He had spared no personal trouble, he had done all that he had known how to do, he had exercised all his intelligence to procure amusement for the boy, but Louis had hardly smiled since he had been taken from his mother. 
and now that he was told that he was to go and never see his father again, the tidings were to him simply tidings of joy. "'There is a curse upon me,' said Trevelyan. "'It is written down in the book of my destiny that nothing shall ever love me.' He went out from the house, and made his way down by the narrow path through the olives and vines to the bottom of the hill in front of the villa. It was evening now, but the evening was very hot, and though the olive trees stood in long rows there was no shade. Quite at the bottom of the hill there was a little sluggish muddy brook, along the sides of which the reeds grew thickly and the dragonflies were playing on the water. There was nothing attractive in the spot, but he was weary, and sat himself down on the dry hard bank which had been made by repeated clearing of mud from the bottom of the little rivulet. He sat watching the dragonflies as they made their short flights in the warm air, and told himself that of all God's creatures there was not one to whom less power of disporting itself in God's Son was given than to him. Surely it would be better for him that he should die than live as he was now living without any of the joys of life. The solitude of Casa Lunga was intolerable to him, and yet there was no whither that he could go and find society. He could travel if he pleased, he had money at command, and at any rate as yet there was no embargo on his personal liberty. But how could he travel alone, even if his strength might suffice for the work? There had been moments in which he had thought that he would be happy in the love of his child, that the companionship of an infant would suffice for him if only the infant would love him. But all such dreams as that were over. To repay him for his tenderness his boy was always dumb before him. Louis would not prattle as he had used to do. He would not even smile or give back the kisses with which his father had attempted to win him. In mercy to the boy he would send him back to his mother, in mercy to the boy if not to the mother also. It was in vain that he should look for any joy in any quarter. Were he to return to England they would say that he was mad. He lay there by the brookside till the evening was far advanced, and then he arose and slowly returned to the house. The labor of ascending the hill was so great to him that he was forced to pause and hold by the olive trees as he slowly performed his task. The perspiration came in profusion from his pores, and he found himself to be so weak that he must in future regard the brook as being beyond the tether of his daily exercise. Eighteen months ago he had been a strong walker, and the snow-bound paths of Swiss mountains had been a joy to him. He paused as he was slowly dragging himself on, and looked up at the wretched, desolate, comfortless abode which he called his home. Its dreariness was so odious to him that he was half-minded to lay himself down where he was and let the night air come upon him and do its worst. In such case, however, some Italian doctor would be sent down who would say that he was mad. Above all the things, and to the last, he must save himself from that degradation. When he had crawled up to the house he went to his child, and found that the woman had put the boy to bed. Then he was angry with himself in that he himself had not seen to this, and kept up his practice of attending the child to the last. He would at least be true to his resolution, and prepare for the boy's return to his mother. Not knowing how otherwise to manage it, he wrote that night the following note to Mr. Glasscock. Casa Lunga, Thursday night. My dear sir, since you last were considerate enough to call upon me, I have resolved to take a step in my affairs which, though it will rob me of my only remaining gratification, will tend to lessen the troubles under which Mrs. Trevelyan is laboring. If she desires it, as no doubt she does, I will consent to place our boy again in her custody, 
trusting to her sense of honour to restore him to me should I demand it. In my present unfortunate position, I cannot suggest that she should come for the boy. I am unable to support the excitement occasioned by her presence. I will, however, deliver up my darling either to you or to any messenger sent by you whom I can trust. I beg heartily to apologize for the trouble I am giving you, and to subscribe myself yours very faithfully. Louis Trevelyan. The On C. Glasscock. P.S. It is as well, perhaps, that I should explain that I must decline to receive any visit from Sir Marmaduke Rowley. Sir Marmaduke has insulted me grossly on each occasion on which I have seen him since his return home. End of chapter 84